Shalom, shalom, friends. Wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for joining today. It's wonderful to be with you all um, for session 29 with Martin Buber. Very exciting. Very exciting. A lot to say, a lot to discuss. Let's start with a little poll question, which is just a masterful art of not capturing all options <laughs> of human experience. How central should dialogue be to our social change approach? How central should dialogue be to our social change approach? Option one, dialogue is everything. Option two, dialogue isn't as important as protest. Option three, there's a limited number of people you can really talk with in any transformative way, but with them, it's so important. <laughs> okay, so option one, dialogue is everything. You want to change the world, you got to talk to people. Option two, dialogue is not as important as protesting because you can't really talk to people. Option three, there's a limited number of people you can talk with in any transformative way, but with them, it is so important. Okay, 22% say dialogue is everything. You want to change the world, you talk to people. 11% say dialogue is not as important as protest. Really, you can't talk to people. You just got to push back on what's bad because you can't just talk to them. 67% here say there's a limited number of people you can talk to, but with them, it can really change you and them in really deep ways. Okay, we will get back to dialogue soon. Martin Buber is a complicated figure and one that we would not obviously include here. He spoke German and Yiddish and Hebrew. He had Orthodox Jewish parents, even though he left that. His grandfather was a big scholar, Solomon Buber. Even Karl Marx was a relative of his. His wife was Catholic, and then she converted into Judaism. He was a cultural Zionist, meaning Hebrew humanism, um, and he had respect for, but a, a, a strong disagreements with Herzl on that regard who viewed Zionism primarily as political rather than as cultural. And um, he was a master of, of philology, like the study of language and texts and stuff like that. And, um, you know, with all of that, and I've only scratched the surface, it reminds me of that old joke, that old Jewish joke, that in my family, I have a communist, a capitalist, a socialist, a chassid, uh, an atheist, and it's all one person. Right. So, in fact, uh, sometimes um, people are complicated and there are many things at once. So, friends, here we go. Religion about our relationship with God or with other people. How can we know God in a world that feels so far removed from the stories of the Bible? How can we know other people in a world that seems to demand that we can that we be productive and make a profit at all times? Normally in this series, we look at a world-famous philosopher and how their ideas relate to Judaism's. But Martin Buber, however, we have a fascinating case of someone who lived steeped in the Jewish tradition and allowed that to shape his philosophical work, which in turn came to be respected all over the world. In fact, 
you know, Buber's actual work on dialogue is much more popular in Christian circles than Jewish circles. Most Jews who go who get a Jewish education don't know anything about Buber's notions of dialogue. Um, but but it, Christian academies often um, train in their seminaries uh, their students very very deeply in Buber's notions of dialogue. This, uh, you ask a Jew what they think of Buber, they might quote some of his Hasidic stories that he quotes, right? Because he's also a scholar of mysticism and, and Hasidism. Distantly related to Karl Marx, as mentioned earlier, Buber grew up in an Orthodox, an Orthodox Jew in Austria. However, he broke from the confines of his tradition and became deeply engaged with the non-Jewish philosophers we've been exploring here. He was a very early Zionist, though he stayed in Germany as a professor at the University of Frankfurt am Main until he resigned in protest when Hitler came to power in 1933. That's a pretty early adopter. Fortuitously, he would leave Germany for Jerusalem just in time in 1938. He went to Hebrew University and was a scholar of philosophical anthropology. Um, but 38 is a pretty fortuitous time to, to take off. Before the state of Israel was founded, Buber was a strong supporter of a binational solution in British Mandate Palestine. Afterward, oh, by the way, by binational um, solution, in case that's not a familiar phrase, that means a one-state solution. Binational solution might sound like a two-state solution because you hear the word bi in there. You hear the, you know, but binational solution means one-state solution, right? That Arabs and Jews um, will coexist in one state. There are there are people who advocate for that still today, um, right? Some people talk about status quo. Some people talk about a one-state solution. People, people talk about a two-state solution. Some people talk about confederation. Uh, um, afterwards, Buber supported a regional federation of Israel and Arab states, right? Now, that's not the same thing as what people talk about a confederation today, where they mean what people mean when they talk about a confederation for Israelis and Palestinians today, what they mean is two states under a federation. Think like the EU. It's an it's an imperfect comparison, but the EU has separate states under this federation of a European Union. That's that's the idea of confederation as well. That Israel is a state, Palestinians have a state, but there's a federation. So what? Well, what do you need a confederation for if you have separate states? Well, the reason you want a confederation if you have separate states is so that there can be a deeper relationship, a deeper partnership, in particular, so that religious people, whether they're Muslims or Jews, who care much about religious sites, can go to those sites, even if it ends up in someone else's state, right? The Muslims want to know they can go to the Temple Mount. The Jews want to know they can go to Hebron, right? Uh, Hebron. Um, and if that ends up that Hebron is in Palestinian state, and Temple Mount is in Israel control that religious Muslims and religious Jews want to know they can go. Buber's view of Zionism can be called Hebrew humanism, Hebrew humanism, which rather than emphasizing nationalism, was concerned with the revival of Jewish culture and ethical life. Right? That's one of his main disagreements with Herzl. Herzl wants a refuge for Jews. Herzl wants sovereignty. Right? Buber wants a revival of Hebrew humanism. He wants a flourishing of culture, right? Uh, Herzl doesn't have so much interest in that stuff. The Jewish state was a means toward renewing and actualizing a Jewish culture for Buber. Buber rejected the idea that he was a philosopher or a theologian. He viewed his work as being in the realm, 
not of ideas, but of personal experience. He knew nothing of the study of God, he would say, only a person's relationship to God. After making Aliyah, meaning ascending to Israel in 38, Buber became the preeminent Jewish philosopher best known for his philosophy of dialogue. In Buber's view, people can have two kinds of encounters. I, it, and, and I, thou. In its original language, ich, do, is I, thou. Ich, es, is I, it. I, it encounters are transactional. We know about it. I just had one this morning. I ordered potatoes, right? I didn't ask, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, look the guy deeply in the eyes and ask his uh, his deepest thoughts of the day. I didn't ask him, you know, how his sick cousin is doing, if he has a sick cousin, right? Or, you know, what's new in his life. I might have said, how are you? But it was a transactional relationship. He wants my money. I want his potatoes. And that's what we're doing over there, right? For example, as you see, you're in this restaurant. You order your food. You're going to be nice to the person at the counter. But the interaction is happening only for the purpose of you getting food, worker getting money. That's not, of course, wholly bad. It's not bad to have transactional relationships in the world, right? But um, you want to be able to have professional relationships with the doctor handling your health, the customer at your business, the person changing your tires. Many people want a distinction between their personal relationships and their professional relationships. Some people have some overlap. A, fr- a colleague becomes a friend, right? Somebody you interact with at Starbucks is someone you know a little bit about, not just uh, that they know your coffee. However, Buber insisted that these I-it relationships are not enough to sustain a human being. Crucially, he believed we need I-thou relationships, the kind in which we seek to gain nothing from the other person, and the other person seeks to gain nothing from us. These are relationships in which we are engaged simply for the sake of the other. In fact, according to Buber, I-thou encounters are the way we can know the divine. He writes in his book, I and Thou, Extended, the lines of relationship intersect in the eternal you, right? That's the third category. Every single you is a glimpse of that. Through every single you, the basic word addresses the eternal you. In every sphere, in every relational act, through everything that becomes present to us, we gaze toward the train of the eternal you. In each, we perceive a breath of it. In in every you, we address the eternal you, in every sphere according to its manner. All spheres are included in it, while it is included in none. Through all of them shines the one presence. Buber argues for dialogical existence, famously saying, all actual life is encounter. For Buber, there's a level of infinity and universality, indeed a transcendence, that emerges in an I-thou encounter. This is entirely compatible with the Jewish worldview, especially as articulated by the Hasidic tradition. In fact, translating and interpreting Hasidic texts for a modern audience was a passion of Buber's. He wanted to make Hasidism, at least the best parts of it, um, accessible to the modern person. And reading his work on this topic can show one why Buber was so inspired by the idea that by recognizing one another, we can come to recognize God. Buber wrote in his work, Hasidism and Modern Man, this is not the place to present the teachings of Hasidism. They can be summed up in a single sentence. God can can be held in each thing 
and reached through each pure deed. But this insight is by no means to be equated with a pantheistic worldview, as some have thought. In the Hasidic teaching, the whole world is only a word out of the, out of the mouth of God. Nevertheless, the least thing in the world is worthy that through it God should reveal himself to the man who truly seeks him. For no thing can exist without a divine spark, and each person can uncover and redeem that spark at each time and through each action, even the most ordinary, if only he performs it in purity, wholly directed to God and concentrated in him. So God can be revealed through all things, Buber understood, and what clearer way is there to find God than through sincere human-to-human encounter? This is especially appealing in our contemporary world, in which the notion of God feels out of reach, unknowable, and maybe even doubtful. Buber eases our discomfort and loneliness by saying, Man cannot approach the divine by reaching beyond the human. He can approach him through becoming human. To become human is what he, this individual man, has been created for. This, so it seems to me, is the eternal core of Hasidic life and of Hasidic teaching. So, you want to be come close to God? Well, don't go sit in shul for four hours and listen to the Torah reading. Don't go out into the forest and pray, right? Don't go meditate. Don't engage in ritual and spirituality. You want to come close to God? Go to a coffee shop with a person and talk to them very deeply for two hours about their life and about their soul and about their human experience. That's the closest to God you're going to get, not in nature and not in the sanctuary. Today, the need for dialogue has never been more apparent. We need genuine dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians someday. We need genuine dialogue to deal with our partisan conflicts in America, probably not in the coming year. And we need genuine dialogue within all of our communities and families, probably not Thanksgiving time. (laughs) But as we learn from Boober, this does not mean simply getting people into a room to negotiate potential gains for each side. Dialogue doesn't mean we're going to negotiate a deal. Right. I mean, I guess that's in theory one form of dialogue. There's two people talking. Right. That's not the kind of dialogue Boober's talking about. I get what I want. You get what you want. The art of the deal that will limit it to an I it encounter. What it means is attempting to grasp the other person as a thou, a human being created in the image of God and apprehending the greatness of what that means, that they are an end in themselves not an instrumental towards some some other ends. Talking to the other, Buber teaches us, is a truly religious enterprise, whatever that means, religious. Religion, we must know, is not as simple as keeping kosher or Shabbat or signing on to the principles of one's faith for Buber. To be religious is to be in dialogue, to have real relationships with people and be changed by the divinity that those relationships reveal to us. And yet, I think as Jews, we can take it a step further. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in his book, Judaism, Life-Changing Ideas, penned a critique of Buber. Here was Sachs's critique of Buber, or at least one of them. To be a Jew is not just a matter of believing or behaving, but also of belonging. Martin Buber wrote a famous book called Spiritual- about spirituality called I and Thou. It had a huge impact on Christian theologians much less so on Jewish ones, as I, as I noted earlier. 
The reason is self-evident. Judaism is less about the I and thou than about the we and thou. It is constructed in the first person, plural of togetherness. All of us is greater than any of us. Christianity, I mean, I'm going to say something, you know, is in many ways about the universal and about the individual. Um, less about peoplehood, Christian peoplehood, because all people um, are kind of a part of the Christian universal enterprise. Judaism has a deep notion of peoplehood, right? There's an us, of course, there's the us of humanity, but there's also the us of the Jewish people. And um, Sachs thinks that Buber distorts Judaism by making it so radically individualistic, which works in many cases in Christianity, right? I have to be saved through Christ, right? I am an individual, need my own personal salvation. That's very different than a kind of a collective salvation in many ways. And so an I, thou, a me and you, um, Sachs thinks, is a little bit of a distortion that Judaism is much more about a, the collective enterprise. Of course, there's an individual element, but it's it's about the we and thou rather than the I and thou, um, the collective welfare, the collective dialogue, ultimately. Okay, much more to say about that. But where Sachs's critique may have been misplaced was in considering Buber to be a radical individualist when he wrote books and books about Zionism. Though I recognize that his book, I, Thou, can be read that way, it was only intended to be the first book in a longer series that would explore questions of collectivity. Buber understood and wrote extensively about the necessity of Jewish peoplehood for the Jewish individual. And so I think Sachs, as he often does, uh, although he's a masterful writer, um, oversimplifies his critique. Sachs likes to toss people to the curbs. Marx is this, and Freud is that, Buber's that. But Buber was not a radical individualist, as Sachs wants to kind of write him off as. Um, perhaps to find the fullest form to dialogical existence, it's not enough to relate as a self to others. We must also break down the barriers of the self so that we can encounter others without the fences that divide us standing in the first place. Judaism, we know, is about more than personal experience. It is about collective consciousness, the kind we experience at Mount Sinai. By the way, um, I, I'm not a fan of these things that have been going around this last week, about 6,000 Jews at Sinai. What's the problem? Someone tell me what's wrong with the statement, 600,000 Jews at Sinai. It's been going around around the conflict. Well, the problem there is that there were not 600,000 Jews at Sinai. There were 600,000 men, Jewish men at Sinai. That did not include children, elderly men, and women, who people we cannot erase. Usually the estimate is there's 3 million at Sinai. 600,000 men of a certain age, Jewish boys, Jewish elderly men, and then women as well. So I think it's, I think it's, a, it's an erasure when people talk about 600,000 at Sinai. In any case, Buber's own argument is that there is no individual without the collective. The collective includes not just the small number of thous I may encounter, but the larger collective, the larger community from which the individual emerges. The difference here is the difference between individual instances of loving kindness and lasting societal change for justice. This does not mean we should throw out Buber and his I and thou. It means the Jewish tradition is equipped to build on it, right? Buber is not talking about 
uh, in the I Thou about societal justice. He thinks the world changes through I Thou encounters. There have been many other disagreements with Buber's I Thou. Rabbi Zachary Truboff, who's actually speaking at VBM next week, I recommend his talk. He lives in Jerusalem now. He went to the same rabbinical school. He writes, Buber imagines I thou in an, a way that is similar to most liberal conceptions of morality, which argue we should have no problem encountering the other, knowing the other, and loving the other. All it takes is a bit of education, a willingness to work on oneself, and empathy. Rosenzweig and Levinas, however, understand the ethical relationship in a far more challenging manner. For them, what is revealed in the I-Thou encounter is just how strange and foreign the other really is. We grasp this only rarely and have to be willing to let it disrupt our lives rather than assume it will reinforce a pre-existing worldview. Okay, I want to make sure this is clear because this is a really important critique of Buber. That for Buber, um, Buber thinks dialogue is so powerful. Human encounters are so powerful that I can come to know you. Whether you're my intimate partner, my best friend, my, um, you know, interfaith partner that we've come to understand so deeply, Boomer is like, yep, I can come to know you if I invest the work. If I have the empathy, if I've done the spiritual work, I can come to know you, right? We can um, come to oneness. Boomer's a mystic. The two different individuals can come together into one. Rosenzweig and Levinas are like, uh-uh, my encounter with you is not a coming to uh, a, a mutual understanding. It's not a coming to knowing each other. It's an encounter with, with your foreignness. It's an encounter with your otherness. There's always a strangeness to you. I don't really know you. There's a gap between me and you. Even if I do the work, the spiritual work, even if I've invested so much time in dialogue, we don't mystically unite. I don't come to know you and you know me in my soul, right? And so um, some might take a Buber approach that we can actually get there and unite. And some might take a Rosenzweig Levinas approach that actually dialogue is about recognizing how different we are, embracing the strangeness of the other rather than kind of coming to know them completely. You know, if you're one of those people who's been married for many decades, you may be like, what, as people commonly say, oh, I know everything about the person. I know what they think. I know what they want. We finish, we finish each other's sentences, right? Re really, like, you know everything. And you might be like, 40 years in, I still, the person still surprises me. I, I still, you know, don't know who the person is. Um, anyways, this is something Rabbi Avi Katz Orlo already began to do when he explored the relationship between Buber's I and Thou and the popular Israeli singer Arik Einstein's 1971 song, You and I. Einstein's song goes like this. You and I will change the world. You and I, then everyone will come. Others have said it before. It does not matter. You and I will change the world. You and I will try from the beginning. It will be bad for us, no matter. It's too, not too terrible. Others have said it before. It does not matter. You and I will change the world. By bringing this text together with Buber's I and Thou, Orlo saw Buber's philosophy of dialogue as a call not just for human dignity, 
but potentially even for society-wide justice, right? That's the best we can do. You want to just, you don't just go to, you want to change the world. You don't just go to Capitol Hill and get meetings about the legislation you want, right? You actually need to get to know people deeply. Think about a community organizing approach to social change as opposed to just a political lobbying approach. He wrote, this is back to Orlo. What did Einstein mean when he wrote, Aniva Ata, you and I? Perhaps it is just the Hebrew translation of the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber's idea of ich and du, I and, I and thou. Buber wrote, feelings dwell in man, but man dwells in his love. That is no metaphor, but the actual truth. Love does not cling to the I in such a way as to have the thou only for its content, its object. But love is between I and thou. Right? I don't hold it. I don't own it. It exists between us. The man who does not know this with his very being, know this, does not know love. Even though he ascribes to it the feelings he lives through, experiences, enjoys, and expresses, life is not just about experience and sensation. Rather, life finds its meaningfulness in relationships. The attitude of the I towards thou is a relationship in which the other is not separated by discrete bounds. Bad things happen in society when we objectify each other. It is only through the aniva ata, I-thou relationship, that we can hope to see positive social change. With his philosophy of dialogue, Buber took us part of the way there by showing us that to see God, we must learn to see beyond ourselves. What's next is what we do with those I-thou encounters. Each of them, each one of them, we will learn, is an opportunity to change the world for better. Okay, dear friends, we've touched on a lot of things here about cultural Zionism, around philology, around philosophies of dialogue. Um, and um, I am very eager to hear your thoughts and questions. Let me say one other thing before we go to Gary Gartzman here. And, and I'm inspired by Lauren Blatt's picture of the cat, her cat, um, um, which is that Buber did actually um, extend the dialogical encounter to animals as well on a limited basis. And I only know this because at Valley Beit Midrash a few years ago, we had the greatest living Buber scholar here. His name is uh, Paul Mendes Flor. He lives in Jerusalem. He's a fascinating guy. You've you got to listen to his content in the Valley Beit Midrash Learning Library if you haven't yet. And I don't know this from talking to him. And the two cases that um, Buber engaged with was the horse and the cat. Um, cats, of course, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know cats are everywhere. And the Kabbalists in, in Israel think the cats are um, reincarnated. Uh, in fact, I think they're the Romans. <laughs> Uh, poor Romans, <laughs> you know, that once ruled over Jerusalem, <laughs> now they're the cats, um, all the stray cats everywhere, but also with the horses. And so it's much more limited than the I thou encounter with human beings, but he does go there. Anyways, Gary, how are you? Fine. I got distracted by the cat dialogue. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's okay. Uh, first of all, I admire what you said about sex putting people in pigeonholes and how you put sex in a pigeonhole. That was, that was slick. <laughs> well, well done rhetorically. <laughs> uh, and but us, this has come up in almost every one of the uh, philosophers we've studied. Uh, uh, two things. One, 
uh, it seems to you know, the criticism looks at their philosophy and uh, how it uh, is separate from religious philosophy. You're, you know, either believe the philosophy or, or you take refuge in religion rather than, and I don't know the answer to this, how much these individuals thought of their philosophy as uh, adjuncts to, additions to, explanations of religion, or how does, I don't like that religion stuff, that's bunk. Here's philosophy and that's, you know, what we should uh, uh, live by. And also just the, you know, taking Sachs' criticism, as you as you put it, that uh, it just doesn't take into the complexity of Buber's thought or Marx or, or, or any one of those people. You know, yeah, you can say that, but it's actually a lot more than, than that. I mean, you really just can't dismiss it as a, well, he just focuses on I and Judaism all is about we. We pray as a group, we, you know, that whole dialogue. So I think it's just it, it comes up with every philosopher. How much of this is a reaction to or run away from religion? And how much is it? I This is a, another way to get you through life. Right. That, right. That's too much for me to say. Love it. Love it, Gary. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. You know, let me first praise Sachs before I, I, you know, offer another critique here. But I mean, Sachs was, until he passed away just a few years ago, all too young, by far the greatest Jew living at the time um ambassador for Judaism. He was in deeply in, embedded in interfaith relationships on the highest level, had the biggest platforms, was the most read person, and was incredibly intelligent and was able to make the case for non-fundamentalist Judaism in a way that reformed Jews, conservative Jews, modern Orthodox Jews, secular Jews, um, were able to find inspiring. And um, that was a real tribute that he offered. That said, um, he knew enough philosophy to be dangerous. In fact, he his, his major in college was classics. He was going to be a professor of classics. He knew, he knew enough until he was convinced, he, he attributes it to the Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, that, to become a rabbi ultimately. But if you read his books, and I've read all of it, um, by and large, his approach to philosophy is to reject it. He ultimately wants to only offer critiques of the Greeks and of the modern philosophers, definitely the postmoderns. He definitely has a strong critique of postmodern philosophy. But he does it not by really engaging inside philosophy, just through kind of simplistic's not fair because he's a complex thinker. But through quick swipes, here's why Plato's wrong in a sentence and why Marx was a fool. And it's very appealing to people who haven't studied philosophy because you can all of a sudden feel like Judaism's on top of the world, right? All these foolish ideas throughout millennium. And then, oh, Judaism's on top. And all those other, all those fools got it wrong. And, um, and, and, and I think actually part of what we're trying to do in this series together is to say, um, the relationship between Judaism and other philosophies in the world is much richer than that, right? I reject the assimilationist approach that just wants to adopt the philosophies of the day and the greatest philosophical ideas of all history. And I want to um, reject the, the the fundamentalist approach that wants to just smack them all down as secular and as as distorted. And I think that, um, I, I, as I said earlier, I don't just want to engage with them. I want to show that we... how. Every religion has always been 
embedded within them and in response you can't separate them out neatly right christianity and um, capitalism christianity and democracy christianity and western philosophy you can't even separate them out anymore as if there's some purity to them they're so enmeshed with each other right um and so it's so anyway so that, that's and, and gary i'm, I'm going to give you a, a, a chance to come back and respond in, in a moment because i appreciate where you're moving us and in response to your first point which i appreciate so much as well um i think yes we've in many cases early on we were dealing with philosophers who were then addressing religion as a separate entity and what we see with buber is how mixed up those two are together and how he's really trying to really reinvent Judaism. He's not encountering it from the outside. Oh, I'm a philosopher. Now, what do I make of this thing called religion? And, and, and analyzing it from, from a distance. He's, he's embedded within, he's enmeshed within Bible studies, within Hasidism, and he wants to reinvent them into what we're going to call neo-Hasidut, right? He, he knows he's distorting it, but distorting it makes it sound like he's, he's doing something corrupt. Right, by he's really just uh, revamping it in a way that's very little uh, recognizable from the start. He wants to universalize it, and um, and I mean to say Judaism or God is primarily about dialogue. That's just not ancient religion. That's just not ancient Judaism. That's not biblical Judaism. That's not Talmudic Judaism. That's not medieval Judaism. You can say you want it to be Judaism because you want it to be that, but it's a hard move. And I think that that's a big distinction between liberal theologians and traditional ones. Liberal theologians make religion into their own voice. Here's what Christianity is. It is what I want it to be. Here's what Judaism is. It's what I want it to be. It's, I, I don't even claim it's authentic. I just make it what I want. Traditional theologians play the game of making what they want sound like it's what the tradition is actually saying, right? I'm going to actually retranslate it, but retranslate it in a way that makes it sound like that's really what it's saying. I'm going to I'm going to work harder to, to say that that's what's going on. Think about progressive Christians or progressive Catholics who really want to remove some of the more troubling dimensions. Think about modern, modern traditional Judaism that wants to reinterpret some of those problematic dimensions. And so that's part of what Buber's a part of. But he's but he's in the liberal camp. Because he makes such big leaps forward, uh, Gary. Any any uh, any responses to any of that? Well, a lot. I mean, I want to open it up, obviously. But you know, one of Sachs's uh, famous uh, statements is: "There are four great revolutions that have occurred in history: British, French, uh, Russian, and and English. And the two that are based on uh, secular philosophy: the French and the Russian ended in bloodshed and." disaster and, and the British and the American based on, in some ways, religion were the only two successful. And that says a lot, I think, about Sachs's view and how he sees uh, the distinction between what a pure philosophical approach to life can mean and one that's based in religion. I'm not arguing for or against yes. just position. Yes. I am so glad you said that because I talked about how he was uh, um, one of the biggest ambassadors for Judaism. What I failed to mention, and this is why he had an interfaith appeal, he was an ambassador for religion. He thought good religion was the answer to our problems. He thought that we had the markets and we have politics, but we've lost the third space. 
everyone's invested in in the market in the marketplace and everyone's invested in the political space but we've lost society and society needs to be rebuilt through the collective through community and he thought religion could best do that and i think he's largely right actually i don't think it's the sole answer but i think he's largely right that the breakdown of good religion is actually a part of the breakdown of society and that we do need to rebuild that um and so but that is that's exactly right that the secular philosophical space is in some ways a threat to that collective religious societal space that we could cultivate and he thought ethics would die without good religion and, and society would die and and what you brought about the four revolutions is is, is just a great example how it's a very uh, oversimplified view, but uh, but a powerful view, but a powerful view about revolutions and what works and what doesn't work. And so, thank you, Gary. Anyway, so much more to say there, but let's um, let's go to Aglaia here. Thing that just um, you know, I have my own point of view on the whole religion versus philosophy thing, but I don't want to really get into it right now. But um, the thing is, though, is that what actually got triggered for me though was um, like this particular passage. Okay, so it's Deuteronomy thirty. Um, 11, surely this instruction which I enjoin upon you this day is not too baffling for you, nor is it beyond reach. It is not in the heavens so that you should say, who among us can go up to the heavens and get it for us and impart it to us that we may observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who among us can cross to the other side of the sea and get it for us and impart it to us that we may be we may observe it. Now, the thing is very close to you in your mouth and in your heart to observe it. Now, the reason why that got triggered for me, though, is that, you know, the whole controversy about is Boober like, you know, like too individualistic versus, you know, like versus I versus we and thou, that kind of stuff, is the fact that I'm kind of looking at it from the perspective of, okay, so if the Torah is within us, okay, just, you know, like, is it within you as, you know, a Jewish person, basically, um, a lot of what you see in the Torah is actually dealing with, okay, so how do you treat other people? How should you interact with other people? How should you be part of a community? So I'm kind of wondering how much difference is there between I and thou and we and thou in the first place? Because if you know, okay, like, you know, like I as a visual know that I am to be part of this community because the Torah is within me. I know that because the Torah is already within me, how I am to be part of this community and how I'm to interact with the community and with the world. I mean, then I don't know, like the differences, I don't know. I kind of see the difference between I and thou and we and thou is kind of, you know, a matter of, it depends on how you choose to look at it. I choose to look at it as, you know, through this lens of, you know, Deuteronomy, you know, 11, 30, 11 through 14. That's just kind of, but that's just me. So, okay, and also just, you, yeah, please. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, oh, sorry, sorry. Please, yeah, please, yeah. Of religion versus philosophy and everything. Um, they're actually, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, um, religion has actually contributed a lot to philosophy and vice versa. And also, if you think about science as philosophy, there has been more exchange between religion and science than anyone wants to admit. So, a lot of the time, though, you're not actually choosing between the two, it's just people have this uh, dichotomy that's inside their minds that really may or may not actually even be, you know, there. It's just something we perceive, but is it really there? Just like if we perceive I versus we, you know, it's a matter of what's in your mind. That's all. Awesome. Thank you. So, uh, yes. So to pick up on that last point first, the conclusions of a philosopher and a, and a theologian may end up being the exact same. 
The difference is often the process that the theologian may need to go through, you know, text analysis, whereas the philosopher needs to go through a process of reason or of argumentation. However, once those two merge a little bit more, um, we, we see a whole lot of creative things, things happening. But let's come back to that point, because I think it's so fascinating um, to think about um, how in modernity uh, the projects of philosophers and theologians or the pro or, or forget even academics, the process of text study and human reason become um, indistinguishable, you might say. In, in many ways. So let's come back to that point because I think it's so interesting about what we how we approach a text and how we how we read a text. Um, do we approach it assuming it's automatically correct or that there's one true read of it or that there's multiple reads? And what is that text even trying to do for us? And what are we trying to do for it? And 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 then you bring in the dialogical encounter. You have a chavruta, a study partner, studying that text with you. What's what what is what happens when the I thou encounter has a text in between? It's not just me talking to you, but it's me and you looking at the text together, right? Um, how, how does that encounter change? Now, to, to go to the, the verse in, in Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy that Aglaia pointed to, that says in, in that pasuk, lo b'shemayim he, the Torah is not in the heavens, lo b'shemayim he. Um, what a fascinating point about the I and the we, that if we have Torah within us, it's not in the heavens, it's right here within my grasp. Um, how how indistinguishable are the inseparable are the as the I and the collective we because we're all a part of this enterprise called Torah and yet we all have it right there within us as well as you're saying. And I think it's a fascinating point to remind us of the Baal Shem Tov's teaching that each of us is a letter of the Torah and without any letter of the Torah it's a pasul Torah it, it's it's invalid it's not kosher and just like without one person the whole thing doesn't work um, that the I and we is is it's all needed it's all needed. Um, that's why in Jewish, in, in this Jewish learning experience, we need, we need each voice in it as well. I, you know, something I've been thinking about this last week in, in the realm of Christian theologians, as it relates to the Torah is not in heaven. One interesting thing that, um, some Christian theologians have been talking about is, so once you enter the world of theodicy, right? Reminder of theodicy, um, how, how can, how can evil exist if there's a God? Right. And so getting back into that. And for those who take the approach that um, this is the liberal approach, that there's God and evil because God needs us to be free. Well, in some ways, that's easier for Jews than Christians to say. Right. For Jews, it's a little easier. Of course, there's evil. God wants freedom. And that means humans can do evil things. Right. We're not just puppets. Life is only meaningful if humans are free. But here's what the Christian theologians say. Ah. It, over there by Judaism, we're not so afterlife focused, even though there's an afterlife, uh, you know, traditionally. But for Christians, afterlife's a pretty big deal, pretty big deal. So Christian theologians say, wait a minute. If, if what makes life meaningful is human freedom, and in the afterlife there's no human freedom, then how can that be the ideal world? If you're trying to create an ideal human experience here in this world, and you say the ideal experience necessitates that humans are free, then how can it be that there's a notion of afterlife where humans no longer have free that is now called the ideal? And that's a really interesting um, Christian theological response to trying to resolve the, the, the problems of theodicy through the necessity of human freedom. In any case, um, Aglaia, thank you for, for flagging those, those, uh, those great issues there for us.
Well, I didn't want to jump in right. at all because I've yep. got two ears and one mouth, so I listen <laughs> okay. as much. But uh, I didn't understand how that new Christian theology was helpful at all. You might have to run that by me okay. again. Okay, good. Let me do that. All right, all right, good. I'm so glad you said that, Gary. All right, let me slow down and take three minutes on it rather than 30 seconds. Okay, so, uh, and I'm going to say some overly basic things in case um, anyone has not thought about theodicy before. So essentially, and I'll put this in the chat, there's three moves you can make uh, to resolve if, if you're engaging with, with theodicy. One has to do with benevolence. Is God good or not? The second has to do with is suffering bad and the third has to do with um omnipotence so the first option you say wait a minute if there's a god who's all powerful and if there are people suffering what do you mean clearly there's no god how could god allow people to suffer like this well the answer of benevolence is god is not good now there's an extreme view of that which means god is not good at all and then there's a softer view which is god is not in any way good like what we think of as good okay that's the that is a, a very traditional move to make. The suffering, the, the second option one can make is that suffering is not bad. Oh, you think it's a problem that humans suffer while there's a God? Who said suffering is bad? Suffering might be good for us because in the next world you get a bigger reward. Suffering might be good for us because Christ suffered and we're Christ-like. Suffering might be good because it makes us stronger. Suffering might be good because only in sorrow can you find the divine. Who's to say suffering is so bad? The third option, so the first two are traditional moves. The third option is a liberal move, the move of omnipotence. That's to say, God is not all powerful. That's the, that's the strongest way to say it. The softer way to say it is God limits God's power. Now, so here, liberal Jews and liberal Christians are going to say exactly what's the problem? We're not puppets. We're free human beings. That's what makes life at all meaningful. That God, if we if we didn't know suffering, we wouldn't know the good. If we didn't know suffering, it means we're not free. If we're not free, then why create humans at all? The problem of where is God in the Holocaust is the wrong question. It's where is humanity in the Holocaust, right? It's an issue of freedom. Okay, everything sounds okay so far, right? Now, what the Christians want to say there is okay. So. In the ideal world, meaning this world, um, people will have to suffer because of this gift of freedom. And that's really sad. But what's more sad than suffering is human existence not existing or human, human existence having no meaning to it. And so, yes, we're going to have to suffer because we're free. Okay. And that makes this the ideal world. Now, here's where the, the Christian theologians say, or some of them, say, well, wait a minute. For us Christians, this is not the ideal world. The ideal world is the next world. And if the next world is the ideal world and we're not free, that's just that's just a world of heaven, heavenly reward. Then now we have a problem. If the ideal world has no suffering and has no freedom, well, then why couldn't this world have that? Right? If, why shouldn't this? What's the point of this non-ideal world um, if God can already create an ideal world? that has no suffering and no freedom. Is that making sense, Gary? And so that's, you know, in, 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 their, own, in their own thought, that's kind of an interesting challenge um, to that camp of omnipotence. So um, I hope that's helpful at all, or, or, you know. By the way, so one of the idea, just before we go to Gary Friedlander, one of the ideas 
that, you know what, I'm not going to get into post-Holocaust theology right now. Let's not go there. Okay, Gary Friedlander, yes. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to go back to Gary, the other Gary's uh, comment uh, about the uh, that society needs religion, uh, United States and what have you, uh, to be a more moral, successful society. Uh, so in today's world, we've seen that uh, increased rise in religious doctrine, both on the right and on the left. But I can't see that we're making any big strides in society with the rise of the right and left uh, uh, religious, uh, both in Judaism and, and Christianity and Islam. Uh, uh, I don't think we're making any any progress. At the same time, we're seeing a, a, uh, a disaffiliation of the masses uh, in this country uh, with religion. Uh, so any thoughts on that that comment uh, or that as you perceive uh, your perception? Thank you. Let me open that up to the group. Um, if anyone wants to hear me, the historian, talk about this, religion can actually go either way, to tell you the truth. But also it depends on what you want to call religion. Do you want to call like atheistic religion, for instance, hum uh, like or humanistic religion, and then there's also communities, you know, around atheism too. So do you want to call those religions? Um, personally, I would call them, you know, especially humanism religion though. But I mean, religion actually has historically gone in either way, and it has been used as a tool also by power. So does it necessarily lead to more moral societies. Well, here's the thing that if you've been studying early modern Europe enough and watch the religious wars, you know, going all over the place and everything like that, you kind of start to wonder now, were those religious wars inspired by people in power who wanted to just basically trigger people? Yes. However, though, it was very good propaganda ploy to get people to go in and like just start killing each other. So, I mean, but on the other hand, though, like you said, like Gary said about the American Revolution, that the religious aspect actually was downplayed and it was very, very helpful for the American Revolution. Now, did it also justify slavery? Yes. Did it also justify abolitionism? Yes. So you're kind of dealing with a question that doesn't really even have an answer. I mean, I'm always saying that these questions don't have answers and everything because I'm not convinced by anything, though, but then that's just me. However, though, I'm just kind of looking at it from the perspective of uh, do we you can't make a sweeping generalization about that particular issue. So that's just historian Aglaia talking. So great. So awesome. So if you look at if you look at it through five different lenses, um, let's say that, you know, a young couple in their early 30s and whether they want to join this community that their parents were a part of. First, you look at it through the theological lens. Well, I don't know if I believe in X, Y, and Z. Why should I be in a community that believes X, Y, and Z if I'm not sure I believe in X, Y, and Z? Then you look at it through the pragmatic lens of does that community help me, right? What I need is a job. What I need are friends. What I need is happiness. Does that community give me the things that I need? Then you look at it through the lens of obligation, right? Um, I don't feel obligated to community the way my parents did. I don't feel I must go. I feel this is all choiceful. Then fourthly, you look at it through the lens of the breakdown of community. Like, um, I don't need in-person community. I've got Instagram community. I've got TikTok community. I've got, you know, my high school friend that I talk to, even though they're in a different state, right? Do I need these people? Then you look at it from the replacement of religious community with political community, right? My main orientation to life is not that we believe theologically X, Y, and Z, 
but that politically I believe A, B, and C. So I'd rather be with people who believe politically A, B, and C. And so, and so, and then, um, and so there's so many different layers to why people are moving away from it. But here's what I don't think is fair for the move away from it. What I don't think is fair is just to blame either side. I don't think we could simply blame religion. Oh, religion failed. Religion is backwards, right? It lost the young people because religion is dumb. And I don't think we could just blame the young people, blaming the consumer. Oh, they don't want community. They don't want truth. They don't want blah, 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 right? I think actually there's a much more complicated uh, relationship that has to happen. But personally, I'm not a big fan of religion doing acrobatics to try to make itself super cool so that um, people, so it can compete with movies and compete with sports, right? And compete with concerts. Um, I think what a lot of people are looking for is authenticity, right? And religion can be authentically different from all those other avenues rather than try to compete with them. Anyways, Steve Chauvin, I think you unmuted a few a moments ago. Oh, yes, 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 I, I can. Love to hear from you, Steve. Uh, very quickly, uh, what, what does the word religion mean and does it necessitate a belief in a personal God, because I I can't I, I can't be close to a personal God, but somehow I believe in religion, and I believe my religion has to do with my pronouns, which are I and we. It's that's that's it. <laughs> I never heard that, Steve. My pronouns are I and we. That, um, that's so cool. Um, did did um, so. Um, Maybe maybe people say that, and this is the first time I'm hearing it, but I've never heard that. Um, that notion that actually the me is a part of the we. Um, that That's so cool, Steve. So thank you. Anyways, um, yes, religion is such a broad term and can mean so many different things. Um, and most certainly one can participate in, in what we call religion with a whole range of social commitments, cultural commitments, um, understandings of texts or of the supernatural, understandings of ethics or beliefs or commitments to certain behaviors or spirituality or the like. And I think a big part of what we might call religion is some belief in the sacred, some belief in the power of, of, of wonder, some belief in mystery, some belief in um, a collective which has a dimension of a sum that's greater than its parts, some sense that um, some 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 notion of faith that there's something unknowable that can move us collectively. Um, and I think that unfortunately, we have um, distorted religion into this most narrow place of like, you are religious if you believe these ten doctrines. And if you don't believe those 10 doctrines, you're not a religious person or you're not a part of this enterprise. Well, um, and I think that's actually part of what Buber was doing. Buber's like, oh, Zionism is emerging, but I think about it very differently. Hasidut was interesting, but I want to redefine it, right? Judaism, uh, it's not about the sanctuary for me. It's about this human to human dialogue. It's about him taking ownership of these isms, nationalisms and religions and and um, and cultural phenomena and reworking them. And um, as a thinker, you can do that all you want. To be in a community, you need to do that in a way that's persuasive to enough people 
that they want to participate in what you have to offer. Otherwise, it's just your own personal religion, right? But anyways, Steve, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I think that's actually at the heart of what Buber is trying to get at here, which is that we need to move away from just checking the boxes of being in a collective and actually look at people, talk to people, come to know people, come to see the complexity of me, the complexity of you, and that complexity of all existence of what we live in that can be discovered through that. And so I leave us all with a charge um, to pick a relationship or pick an encounter or a meeting that's coming up this week and say, how in that half hour space or hour space that we're together, can I go so much deeper at how I look at you? And in the moment where I'm looking at you in a transactional way, that you're here to give me something and I'm here to, you know, to get something and vice versa, that I want to um, push that aside to be in a radical space of presence, um, uh, alterity of otherness, and ultimately um, to seeing you and being seen. Friends, have a beautiful day. Thanks so much.